as we continue worshiping together today, you may turn in your favorite Bible app or the Pew Bible before you and receive this reading from the first book of Genesis, chapter, uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 27 and 31. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. All right, we say welcome one more time here to Foundry this morning. If you're joining us online, welcome to you. It is the summer swing, and so if this is your first time here, we do say a special welcome. And for those of you who have traveling plans coming up, know that we're praying for your safety as you make your way around the country or wherever you happen to be going. Somebody after the nine o'clock service said the only thing this sermon didn't have was singing or a musical number. So, <laughs> let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with when you sing, you begin with do re mi, do re mi, do re mi. The first three notes are. I think we did pretty good. I think we did okay. We did okay. Yeah. And now this sermon has everything. All right. So just sitting here with these brief verses from Genesis, we can learn some of the lessons that were taught at the very outset of our story. The verses that we're given today are from one of two creation narratives contained within Genesis. And for background, this narrative that begins the book of Genesis is considered to be from what's called the priestly source, likely being developed and captured after a return from Babylonian captivity and just so you have it, roughly 530 BCE. And I want to make sure that we've covered at least this, that we know that this is not a play-by-play -play of creation of the universe. It should never be used to stand in the way of scientific discovery or exploration, and our faith is no less because we apply reason and experience to our study or interpretation of Scripture. In fact, we encourage it. It is part of our Wesleyan tradition. And do not let the binary presentation of gender in these texts be a barrier to what we know is the beautiful, wonderful, wide diversity of human beings in this world. Neither the male pronouns for God contained there. We know there is much more to this universe than our language can ever hold. This priestly source narrative has within it a layer of understanding 
of what it is like to be captive and to be a stranger. This source is described as more, quote, foreigner-friendly in not only this narrative within the creation story, but in other narratives where it appears throughout the Old Testament. And so I do think it is a helpful reminder for us to think about how this creation story comes first in our very intentionally canonized Bible. There were choices made over thousands of years to put this first. It matters where we start our stories, and that was a lesson that was learned a long time ago as the faith came together. So, first, we remember God spoke the world into being, including humankind, and called it and called us good. Now, already, the story that comes together for those within the Abrahamic religions from its outset is different from neighboring creation stories of a similar time. A common comparison to consider would be that of the story of Marduk and Tiamat, the key God figures in the Sumerian creation story. In that story, the world is not created because of a creative outflowing from God, but rather as the result of a cosmic battle in which Marduk defeats Tiamat and then splits Tiamat in two, creating the domes of earth and sky. Human beings are still formed from the earth, but not because they have the breath of life breathed into them. Rather, the spilled blood of Tiamat's husband, Kingu, is mixed into the mud to create human beings. That's a little gruesome. But I imagine that cosmic battles are frequently a little gruesome. But that's a similar story for other ancient religions that the earth would have come together and come into being because of cosmic strife, seeking order through power. And those battles, the results of which is usually some form of societal and earthly order, were frequently used to prop up various civilizations, either as the uh, prop up various elites of a civilization, either as God's surrogates for keeping order on earth or demigods themselves, like Gilgamesh. That's an extremely cursory look at some comparative creation story, and I do encourage you to be curious about these things and not just take this brief explanation of it. But I lift it up because this, even this short look provides some of the key differences for our story. We are not some accident of a cosmic battle. And our story does not begin in order to enthrone an elite individual or ruling class. In fact, this point is made even more in the second creation narrative that focused so much on the laboring and co-creating within creation by human beings. Rather, our story begins with God intentionally forming the earth and all creation, including us, and calling us good, even as field hands, as Karen Armstrong says, not rulers. And we aren't made from the spilled leftovers of a vanquished enemy or a cosmic battle, but formed from the earth and told that it was God breathing life into each and every one of us. And not only that, 
but our verses today say being made in the very image of God, and it is good. And it would have been good news for the early Israelite communities as well. On the one hand, here is God revealed as directly interested in the lives of those who were otherwise treated as peasants, held as slaves, devalued not only in other creation narratives, but within the larger community life as well. And on the other hand, the priestly narrative speaks directly to a group that had found themselves returning to Judah to find former religious family had become strangers. They themselves were feeling foreign in what was once their homelands, plus the import of foreign people who had been living out their own captivity in that place and needing to learn to live within a diversity of people that was frequently, and to that point by their own religion, considered to be an existential threat. The good news comes. You were created with love. You were intentionally made by God. You were made in the image of God, and so was everyone else. And it is good. This call to commonality arrives as a necessary rewrite, necessary for survival, necessary for life together, to teachings that had already been in circulation that frequently demonized the stranger contained within the same tradition. The multiple sources coming together to form the stories of our faith over time is one of the reasons that we end up with contradictory Bible passages. But this priestly source version created all of you good and in the image of God represents lessons learned. In this case, the image of God seems to have expression of commonality and value of all humankind as a primary intent. And I'm choosing to hold on to that piece of goodness today and say that I'm being encouraged because of the image of God in each of us to honor the sacred worth of every person regardless of tribe or gender or sexual orientations or languages or nations or party or anything else. An unperson, though, is a thing I think about a lot. An unperson is a term from George Orwell's 1949 novel, 1984, a dystopian social science fiction novel and cautionary tale against totalitarianism. Unperson is generally used in the orders given to Winston Smith, the story's protagonist. And he's given those orders at his workplace within the Ministry of Truth's records department. Usually the order contains instruction to edit some record or writing because it had mentioned or alluded to an unperson or someone who had otherwise been disappeared, executed, or vanished from existence. So not merely that they were dead or had died, but blanked from all existence or not ever existence 
never existing according to any record of the state and despite what you know in your head. They were never there. They were an unperson. I want to own the fact that uh, I have never read 1984 <laughs> in its entirety. However, uh, I have watched the entire series of MASH somewhere close to 1,984 times. And it is in MASH where I first came in contact with the term unperson. If you're not familiar, and God bless our intergenerational church, if you're not familiar with MASH, okay, there's a television series. It was set during the Korean War in the 50s. It was filmed in the 70s and 80s. They were really in California. It's fine. It came on the TV. We had like, we had aerials, right? And we had cable. Okay, this is before streaming. Okay, all right. Just some of you know, some of you don't. I needed to say it. All right. Now, the MASH series had one particular episode called The Late Captain Pierce. And Captain Pierce was one of the main characters throughout the entire series. His nickname was Hawkeye. A notice is sent from the army to Hawkeye's father saying that Captain Pierce had died. This, of course, was not true. And after the usual antics and jokes about army filing, uh, keeping, and system mess-ups, the inevitable wake with Captain Pierce as the honored guest, and the, especially in the later seasons, drastic and dramatic turn to something slightly darker, the likely culprit of the mistake is identified. They explain it. Probably just some clerk down the line had switched the doctor's name with that of a deceased patient. No big deal. Happens all the time. Followed by the explanation of the very absurd form-laden process to have the record created. Enter Captain Pratt. Submit to Quartermaster Corps a request to rescind the certificate of death on Form 10 Stroke 249 in triplicate, accompanied by an SF 88 Stroke 1107 signed by three officers of equal or higher rank, followed by a personal written report on Form 63 Stroke EBY by a ranking officer who actually saw the deceased not die um, in triplicate. Captain Pierce, well, what does this all come down to when you boil it down? Colonel Potter, that is boiled down. Captain Pierce, this could take weeks, stroke months. Captain, uh, Colonel Potter, he could be dead by the time you make him alive. <laughs> well, we'll do the best we can, says Captain Pratt. Sadly, almost every single week this episode jumps into my mind as we work with guests at our ID ministry. You may well know that the ID ministry here at Foundry that we do on Wednesday mornings has a main function to work with guests as they go through the process, the form-laden process, of getting their identification documents such as social security cards, birth certificates, and non-driver's IDs. You may not realize, however, that ID means for us imago dei or imago dei, the image of God. It is a very convenient shorthand with double meaning for me. Over the years, especially around 2014, working with leadership from people like Jane Northern and Leo Lawless, the time we had called it the walk-in mission. But it was growing, and it was growing in particular in response to the ID process becoming more difficult, 
due to the implementation of Real ID standards in Washington, D.C. and around the country. As it became more difficult and a very long process, I realized we were no longer a mission or just a place where you quickly come in, grab a check, and then leave again. We had to become a ministry that could accompany people throughout this much longer process and become a source of encouragement within that process that frequently devalued their personhood. That's where the unperson comes in for me and the lessons learned on that journey. The process has become, to quote one volunteer who's back in the corner, soul crushing, he said, at times, most recently after working seven months on just one birth certificate and spending all told roughly 15 hours on the phone with the state of North Carolina. I know, but it's mine. So I love them, but also like, what are we doing? All right. We see it often with different guests' experiences. Here's the weeks, strokes, months process in the shortest iteration that we could make it for our guests. You come here to Foundry, you meet with the volunteers. If you had nothing, we're gonna send you to get a medical record signed by a doctor. We use that medical record to then apply for your social security card, which is mailed, and that usually takes up to two weeks. And then we use those records and some additional to get your birth certificate. If it's a DC birth certificate, you could do it same day if you don't show up after the office closed like I did this week. Or if you're applying online to another state, it may take, I don't know, seven months, six months, four weeks, depends on the state. And then you can take all of that once it finally arrives, plus a check or your homeless verification over to the, to the DMV to get your ID, which is mailed within two weeks. And so, this is the process that many of our folks face if they don't have an access to be able to pay for a lawyer or some caseworker that could possibly fast track some of the items. And many of the people that we see are alone or in strained relationships with no one who can or no one who is willing to vouch for them. And the process ends up averaging at best a month or more. And usually our guests have been working for multiple weeks, if not months, before finding us. The financial cost for the IDs and birth certificate is 43 total here in DC, 23 for the birth certificate, that varies by state, 24 a non-driver's ID, 46 for a driver's license, if you can afford it. But all of that, plus any transportation to come see me, to come see the volunteers, to go to the doctor, to go to the birth certificate place, to go to the DMV. My goodness, it ends up being, I don't know, five bucks a trip at roughly five stops, $25 for an average of 68 to $70 just to get your ID if you need it and are starting with nothing. Plus, if you need childcare or time off from work, the totals just keep going up. And so you can see some of the physical and the financial costs that all of this time taken for trips and funds expended. But what I observe is also the spiritual and mental cost inflicted on so many people as they try to go through this process. And as you sit at the table with someone, as we attempt to answer knowledge-based questions on online forms to try and get your birth certificate when it starts asking things, and feel free to answer this in your own head, was it your mom's maiden name on the birth certificate or was it her married name? 
Was it her name before a divorce or her name after? Does it have a hyphen or does it have a space? Is your father's name on the certificate? What's that? You only know him by his nickname? Not good enough. And if you happen to be just a letter off, it's going to take you more rejections, more time, more forms, until we can finally get everything to match it. Yes, it can be soul-crushing to have your personhood questioned like that. And we see these barriers frequently. It's one of the big reasons that we now say this has to be a ministry of support. Just a couple of examples. I have sat with people. He was 53 at the time when we met in my office to try and work through this process. And it was in that process, as I told him, that he found out he was adopted. And his adoptive parents had already passed, leaving him with a whole bunch of questions and very few answers and options. I've had people discover they have no name. I have worked with people who all their life have had IDs and jobs and been to school and been successful only to go and apply for their birth certificate and find out that their name is actually blank, blank, car. It was fascinating. That took a year to try and sort that one out. And what it does is it throws people into a situation where everything they've known about themselves, and they do know it, it's not just in their head, starts to get questioned and poked, and they have those doubts, and they feel discouraged, and so we try and try to move them along. We see it frequently now, where we have someone who was, uh, of a, let's say they're 60, they're 70, they're 80, they're applying, trying to get a birth certificate from their home state. It happens a lot with our black guest born in the South during Jim Crow and segregation, where we apply and find, come to find out their birth was just never registered with the county or with the state, either because it was a home birth or they had no access to the hospital. And lo and behold, many of those states are now rolling out voter ID laws. And the state just comes back to you and they just kind of say, well, you're not who you say you think you are. You're not who you've known yourself to be your entire life. You're not who your family has said you are. And all of these things cost people more money and more time just to get those little bits of paper so they can start moving into housing or start their jobs or get their kids to school. Even not engaging workarounds right now, we have jurisdictions taking seven months on average to get us documents. And I just find the whole process regularly devalues the image of God. Now, I have literally walked up to people on a Wednesday morning or a Friday morning in the past and who are on the edge of giving up or breakdown, and I will say things to them like, try not to worry about this. We are with you. God knows who you are. We know who you are. You are beloved, created in the image of God. It is good, and we will go with you until this is finished. And so I hold to the idea that this image of God cannot be taken from you, whatever the state happens to be saying. 
Of the many interpretations applied to the term Imago Dei over the centuries, I have found two things most encouraging in these last weeks. Firstly, each and every one of us is created in the image of God, is of sacred value and worth, and worthy of respect by the law and by interaction. No one group is more deserving than any other. Secondly, of the many thoughts about the meaning of the image of God, I find the interpretation that we have been endowed with a capacity to love, to choose to love and care for each other in all creation, and the ability to know that we have that choice feels most compelling for me today for this special little dirt creature containing the breath of life. With that ability to choose, we have absolutely created various systems throughout the centuries that devalue the image of God and others, at times outright denying the Imago Dei based on race or nationality and intentionally pushing some into that category of unpersonhood. But the image of God within you and within your neighbor cannot be taken away by anyone. And I offered the example today of what we see at ID Ministry due to just one small part of our system that still needs care and correction. But you could be very well feeling devalued today on the heels of Supreme Court decisions or staring down what is already promising to be an absolutely horrific cycle of candidates intentionally trying to outdo one another by dehumanizing whole groups in the run-up to next November. So I just offer us the lesson back. You're no accident. We're not created from some spilled leftovers. We are a special little dirt creature (laughs) with the breath of life. And you and I, no matter what any candidates or churches or systems or laws or courts say, are intentionally created in the image of God, just as you are, and it is good. So we'll journey together through all of this other stuff, And because we can, we will choose daily to love one another at every opportunity, giving particular attention to those places in our systems and life together still in need of care and correction. May it be so. Amen.